Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're diving deep into a central Ohio legend that's been told and retold every spring. In an attempt to explain away something as regular as rainy days in May, we've touted a trite story about an unsettled Native American spirit exacting justice from behind the veil. It's a trope repeated in American folklore across the country for centuries. Countless tales of disasters of all sorts, from earthquakes to droughts, floods and famines, we search for explanations for the mayhem. Our misfortune couldn't just be the result of weather patterns, climate changes, or other such forces beyond our control, right? In the cosmic universe of rights and wrongs, such misfortune must serve as some kind of punishment. A deeper look at our history must reveal our transgression, confirming our notion that the world is just, that we are truly in control of things, and that bad things happen because of the bad things people do. It's a very American way of understanding hard times, the view that if we're just smart enough, had we made the right decision, all could have been averted. Our need to make sense of things is an ache that's been passed down through generations. And when it comes to life and death situations, it's not hard to understand why we grasp for some kind of rationale. Only, what we're talking about today bears no dire outcomes. No one dies. In fact, no one really suffers much more than a pair of muddy cleats, or at worst, a lost chance to win Ohio's crowning Memorial Golf Tournament. I'm talking about the, quote, cursed Memorial Tournament at Dublin's Muirfield Village Golf Club. Reports that this yearly, world-class PGA tournament is plagued by supernatural forces began appearing in newspapers in the early 1990s. However, unusual weather disruptions have been occurring long before then. As early as 1979, a wind chill of 13 degrees greeted players as they took to the course. Columbus native Jack Nicklaus himself had designed the course and opened it only three years earlier. Ten years later, in 1989, snow blanketed the fairway in mid-May. In 1990, the play was halted early on account of storms. In 1997, torrential rains saturated the course, causing an extension of the tournament an entire day, just to complete an already shortened course. In 2001, Tiger Woods himself toughed out six rain delays before winning his third of five memorial victories. A deluge of biblical proportions plagued the 2013 tournament, allowing play to resume late in the evening under lift, clean, and place rules. This left no time for the shot matches, the highly anticipated duels that pitted golf royalty against one another. These persistent weather events hampering this renowned golf competition is reported on worldwide. Professional players from around the globe return every year, bracing themselves for the worst Mother Nature can dole out. Yet of all the examples I just laid out for you, one year stands out among the rest. The events surrounding the tournament in 1993 would bring forth the narrative which remains yet today. The tidy, supernatural explanation that accounts for nature's wrath on game day. 
It's the reason local news anchors needle their meteorologists every year about the forecast for the tournament. It's the reason local high school math teachers instruct their students to conduct a statistics project, determining if the poor weather is actually anything out of the ordinary. The tale of what occurred in 1993 set the stage for the oft-repeated lore. It's a story worth digging into. After suffering multiple rain delays over the previous four years straight, Arnold Palmer's wife, Winnie Palmer, suggested that they might do something about it. She told Jack Nicholas's wife, Barbara Nicholas, the rumor that Muirfield Village had been built over an old cemetery. An old wives' tale suggested that a glass of gin left at the gravesites would mollify any angry spirits. Without skipping a beat, Barbara did a bit of research and found no evidence of any cemetery beneath the course. However, she did discover a nearby gravesite of the chief of the Wyandotte Nation, Chief Leatherlips. It took considerable persuasion, but she eventually convinced Jack to take her there, before the start of the tournament. After driving less than four miles, crossing the mighty Scioto River, they arrived at a grave marker erected in 1889 in the honor of Leatherlips, chief of the Wyandotte tribe of Indians, executed on this spot June 1, 1810. This tombstone still stands at the corner of Riverside Drive and Stratford Avenue. As instructed, the couple left the ceremonial glass of gin on the hulking granite marker. The homage didn't work. The rain began before play even started, and an inevitable suspension of tournament was necessary. Without much to lose, Barbara snuck away, this time on her own, to leave a second glass of gin, in hopes of yet winning the unsettled spirit over. Whether by luck or by appeasement, the clouds began to clear after her third trip to the gravesite on the tournament's second day. The account of the whole story was published in local newspapers. This planted the seed for the enduring legend, as it's become today. We finally had an explanation for the unlucky weather of Ohio's most esteemed professional golf tournament. And just as with most Ohio folklore episodes, when we start to peel back the layers of this lore, we discover historical truths that teach us a bit more about who we are as Ohioans, our faults, our failings, and our ongoing efforts to grow into something better. The oft-repeated trope about a modern structure being built over an ancient Indian burial ground was stretched to fit the current circumstances. What we have here is not a Native American cemetery, but the burial of one man, a chief no less, with the unusual name of Leatherlips. It's a gravesite located not on the golf course grounds, but just a few miles east, across a picturesque Scioto River, whose waters flow south through Columbus before eventually joining with the Ohio and the Mississippi. Just how did this singular centuries-old gravesite become associated with something as modern and bourgeoisie as a bunch of weather-frustrated, mostly white men, in polo shirts and khakis? 
Barbara Nicholas may not have known it at the time, but her efforts to engage the supernatural, to stave off the rains, sparked an interest in Dublin's long-forgotten Native history. For just being one gravesite, it's substantial, to say the least. Taking up an entire corner lot, the granite marker, which was laid in 1889, is surrounded by manicured lawn. A rustic stone fence marks the outer border. It fits well with the 19th century vibe. Five modest steps lead up the small embankment where locals are known to leave trinkets and flowers. This native leader, gone now for more than 200 years, is remembered with reverence and with awe. No wonder many believed his spirit yet powerful enough to command the heavens. The first written account of the 1810 execution of Wyandotte Chief Leatherlips was documented in the 1854 book entitled The History of Ohio, From Its Earliest Settlement to Its Present Time. It documented Ohio's transformation from being once inhabited by Native peoples to the growing settlements of European immigrants. One of the most notable aspects of this grave marker, in particular, is that it was erected by the descendants of white settlers. Leatherlips's influence on the growing white population was significant, perhaps even unparalleled in his day. Some of that influence remains, as you'll learn further on. But let's start at the beginning, with the written account as recorded in this historical reference in 1854, only 44 years after the execution itself. According to authors W.H. Carpenter and T.S. Arthur, Chief Leatherlips, an elderly leader of the Wyandotte Nation, had been charged with, of all things, witchcraft. This charge, notoriously difficult to prove or unprove, resulted in a sentence of death. Leatherlips had been convicted by a contingent of elders from neighboring tribes, not the least of which included Shawnee Chief Tecumseh and his brother, known as the Prophet. They sent a group of about six executioners to his encampment, about 12 miles north of Columbus on the Scioto River. There, these executioners conducted a council, which took about three hours. Throughout, Chief Leatherlips was calm and dispassionate as he listened to their charges against him. Some local white settlers who had befriended Leatherlips and his tribe were summoned once the council began. On arriving, they pled with his accusers to spare his life. They offered up a prized horse and other goods to appease them, but to no avail. With the council convened, the executioners walked Leatherlips to his village. The group partook of a meal of freshly butchered venison. The chief then took pains to wash himself in the river's waters, put on his most sacred ceremonial buckskin, and painted his face. His demeanor was calm as the hour of his death approached. He shook hands with those who were there to witness it, the white settlers who came to know and love him. He then shook hands with his executioners. With the voice surprisingly strong for his age, he began chanting and singing in his native tongue as he marched to a shallow grave, freshly dug. The group followed behind him. On reaching the spot, 
he knelt down and stopped singing. He began a prayer to the Great Spirit. On hearing his words, one executioner knelt down beside him and joined in the praying. And when their words ceased into silence, one of his executioners drew a tomahawk from under a cloak. He stepped quickly toward the chief, raising the weapon high and bore down with all his force on Leatherlip's head. He fell forward, laying motionless in the shallow grave, his wound gaping. After a couple of moments of stunned silence, one of the executioners noted fresh beads of sweat forming on Leatherlip's neck and face. Exalted, he claimed this was evidence of the witchcraft, that Leatherlips was attempting to rise from death. In response, the tomahawk was raised three more times, coming down again and again on the poor chief's head. And when the deed was finally accomplished to the executioner's satisfaction, he was finally buried. Such was the account confirmed by white settlers who claimed to have witnessed it firsthand. Reports were that they were inconsolable in their grief. Notably, the response of the Wyandotte tribe members themselves were not even mentioned in the book. It's as though their perspective didn't even matter. Fast forward 45 years and a local organization called the Wyandotte Club erected the grave marker which stands there today. It's the memorial which still receives various tributes, including flowers, tiny statues, and glasses of liquor meant to hold off the rains. One summary of this local lore was printed in the November 10, 1901 issue of the Philadelphia Inquirer. At the time, the grave marker was one of only four in the whole of the United States dedicated to an American Indian. Of all the countless Native peoples lost by that time, what was it about Chief Leatherlips that drove such an effort to immortalize his legacy? For one thing, the narrative had begun to shift. His charge of witchcraft had evolved into something else entirely. By 1901, the going story was that the real reason for Leatherlips' execution was that he dared oppose Shawnee Chief Tecumseh's plans for an armed rebellion against white settlers. In 1795, the Treaty of Greenville, Ohio, concluded aggression that had been occurring between Northwestern tribes and U.S. forces, led mainly by General Anthony Wayne. It was sold as a treaty to end all treaties that would lead to peace between white settlers and their native counterparts. The leaders of most tribes within the Ohio Territory signed it, including Wyandotte Chief Leatherlips. One notable exception was the legendary warrior chief, Tecumseh, of the Shawnee. His plan was to organize native tribes into a confederacy that would create an independent native state and stop the development of further white settlements. In the decades that had passed since his death, Tales of Leatherlip's skill as a peacemaker had grown. In fact, the name Leatherlips, given him by whites, reflected the durable truth of his words. His integrity was as strong as the most enduring material known at that time, leather. He had been called a friend by white leaders. 
they could make deals with him that they knew would be enforced. So when he signed the Treaty of Greenville in 1795, he meant it, as he meant all his promises. The story, as told by white writers and historians of the early 20th century, was that Leatherlips believed Tecumseh's war foolish and worse, futile. Twenty years after Leatherlips' death in 1830, Potawatomi chief Shabona acknowledged the hopelessness of Tecumseh's campaign, stating, The pale faces would soon bring an army like the leaves on the trees and sweep them into the ocean beneath the setting sun. Leatherlips saw this awful truth bearing down on his people. Many believed his attempts at peace were a valiant effort to spare more lives. Leatherlips was deeply revered among the Wyandots and indeed among many neighboring tribes. His reputation for truth and honesty preceded him. It was his drive for peace and compromise with the white settlers that made him a threat to Tecumseh's drive for war. This, then, was the true motive of his execution. In order to convince all tribes to join the Confederacy, Tecumseh and other leaders needed Leatherlips out of the picture. A contrived charge of witchcraft, which he could not disprove, suited their purpose well. This way, they didn't have to denounce his leadership, which would not have gone over well with the native population. Instead, Tecumseh's group was fighting evil forces of another plane and dimension altogether, witchcraft. Shata Yorona, Leatherlip's name in the Wyandotte tongue, was dead, as was his campaign for peace with the white invaders of native lands. This history has been the accepted narrative for decades, touted in newspaper articles, encyclopedias, and historical archives. An official account is also listed in the archives of today's Wyandotte Nation, which is situated in Oklahoma's northeastern corner. Chief Leatherlip's reputation as a martyr in the cause of peace remains. The nation's concluding statement on his legacy is that, In any case, a good man died rather than break his written pledge, and it is good that later generations have seen fit to honor his name and his memory. Chief Leatherlip's legacy has been cemented, literally, as you're about to learn. In May 1990, just a few years before the cursed Memorial Golf Tournament legend took hold, the Dublin Arts Council finalized plans to construct a large monument. Chief Leonard Bearskin, the then leader of the Wyandotte Nation in Oklahoma, traveled to Dublin to help break ground on the limestone sculpture. Raising a peace pipe to the heavens, he then lowered it to his waist and made gestures while turning in the four cardinal directions. He then gave a brief statement to those gathered, explaining that in signing the Treaty of Greenville, Chief Leatherlips had signed his own death warrant. In keeping true to his word, he gave his life in hopes of maintaining peace. In closing, Chief Bearskin said, He must have known he was going to die. I'd like to think he made peace with the Great Spirit. Chief Leatherlips' monument remains open for visitors. 
It's situated about two miles south of his burial site. The oversized head, built into a hillside, is made of limestone blocks stacked 10 feet high and overlooks Scioto Park. It gazes over the Scioto River, the historic waterway where he and his tribe fished, camped, and traveled all their lives. One of the pieces of stone within the monument is from the Methodist Indian Mission in Upper Sandusky, pulled from the Sandusky River by Wyandotte tribes people themselves before their final removal from the state in the early 1840s. The aim of this monument is to serve as a reminder of not only Leatherlip's controversial death, but of his life, of his commitment to his word, of his integrity, and of his enduring devotion to peace. So what are we to make of the folklore surrounding this story today? On the surface, it seems that this critical piece of Native American history has been overshadowed by a golf game. Many Central Ohioans today only know Leatherlips as the long-dead Wyandotte chief who curses the memorial tournament every year with inclement weather. This lore is rooted in fiction and happenstance. The truth of the matter is that spring brings rains. An outdoor event held at this time of year is bound to run into problems on a regular basis. Yet in search of an explanation, we've spun a tale to account for it. In looking to ensure sunshine, we've participated in a kind of superstition, an effort to beseech a long-dead spirit to control the heavens above our heads. The awful truth that underlies this lore is the fact that the U.S. government and the state of Ohio by extension treated native tribes not as people, but as trifles to be overcome. Our own government, in its unending hunger for land and power, made and broke treaties with native leaders time and again. Our own integrity on such promises was non-existent. It's no wonder why many tribes, like the Shawnee, found themselves scrambling for a way forward. If the whites couldn't be trusted, if their word was worthless, who can blame any group for going to war in an effort at self-preservation? Leatherlips could have easily justified war. Instead, he chose peace. In confronting the oppressive powers that be, he stayed true to his character and the values of his people. It's an example worth remembering in our world today, fraught with division and hateful politics. Had the white leaders of our ancestors held true to their word, perhaps we'd be living in an Ohio blessed with native tribes still living within our borders. Instead, what we're left with today is the powerful example of a man who gave his own life rather than break a promise to an oppressive government. It's a lesson far more weighty than a delayed golf game. It's one I hope we all consider the next time a little rain falls on the land we hold dear. This concludes today's episode on the legacy of Chief Leatherlips. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. 
You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering. <laughs>